have in my hand. Powerful Word of God. Can change lives. Heal broken hearts. Save man's soul. And heal us from sickness. Heal us from any evil that comes in our life. Protect us when we travel. Protect us when we have surgery. And here's our prayer, Lord Jesus, today. Speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at your neighbor and say, "Mm, mm, I love you. Oh, we don't get told enough that we're loved. I love every one of you. Thank you. I, uh, Don and Pat have, Don and Pat have been around me for a long time. And, uh, I, I love them more today than I've ever have. Their faith, um, Don's, Don's quiet spirit. Isn't it, isn't this awesome? I mean, he could be bitter, but he chooses not to be. I love it when he says, well, just whatever. I just love it. Yes, sir. The passage out of Psalm 34 that says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivers him out of them all. Well, we'll stand on that one. Amen. Amen. We are in our series, The Story. We're on chapter 9, The Faith of a Foreign Woman. When you were growing up, how many of you can remember being disappointed when you were growing up? Especially when it came to Christmas time and birthday time. Because at Christmas time or birthday time, you would want a certain type of gift, and you know as well as I do, that every gift you got didn't necessarily hit a home run. Anybody identify with that one? Okay. And then as adults, we learn a little bit better how to deal with that disappointment. But I think most of us can understand the feeling, uh, especially when we were a kid. Uh, We know what it's like to expect one thing and get something else, to have some hope in one area of life, but then to discover disillusionment. Now, when it comes to presence, we kind of get better at disguising it, don't we? We get better at masking it. Most of you who are married, you know what it's like to have a spouse that just somehow doesn't get it. Like you've, you've told your husband, ladies, these are the shoes I want. These are the size of shoes that I wear. This is what I want. And he decides that he wants to be creative. And he wants to think outside the shoe box. And so you open up that present on your birthday and it looks like the right size and the right shape, but you open it up and there aren't shoes in there. He's put a box of Nutrisystem food or something stupid like that in the box. 
Well, guys, you want that newest electronic gadget. Maybe it's an iPhone. Maybe it's a, I don't know. And so you get the box. It's the right size box. It's the right shape box. And you open it up. There's not an electronic device in there. It's nose hair clippers. Maybe you need those. I'm not sure. But, yeah, electronic (laughs) nose clippers. Oh, boy, that's great. So we, we all know what it's like to have some of those moments, right? And we've learned to kind of just swallow the bitterness. By the way, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. So if you would turn there in your Bibles or on your electronic device, get to the book of Ruth. Our, um, all of our messages are online at rocjinx.org. And when the, the web page comes up, there's tabs. It says online features. Click that. Boop, there they come. They're by date, title. And so we encourage you, if you want to go back and catch some of these, uh, please do. Try to put the outline on there when we have one available. But we all, we all have moments like this where we have to swallow bitterness. We've kind of learned to pretend that, you know, everything's okay. Ah, oh, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. When really it's not okay because it's not what you want. But inside, inside, we may not stomp off and slam doors, but we do it figuratively sometimes, don't we? And I just wonder if some of you have experienced this moment in your life, maybe recently in your own life, or maybe someone that you know, they graduate from college, they're, they're, they're just full of hope, they're full of, whoo, man, I am ready to roll, only to find out the job market's not what it should be, and there's this, it goes from expression of excitement, enthusiasm, to, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? They're going to have to move back in with their parents, who don't want them to come back home, but then they don't have any choice, so they... And somewhere along the line, they've gotten married, right? And so now, he or she has to take that spouse back to their house that they grew up in. <laughs> uh, just, just something about that. Amen? Not the, not the greatest choice to have to make. But it's a reality of what's going on. Maybe, Maybe you got married and there's an excitement of an anticipation about the wedding day and about the package that you're going to unwrap on each side of that. And boy, and for, and for some it takes a while to get the wrapping off. I, I understand that. But after a while, it's not what you thought it was going to be. And so you get disappointed. I just know that many of us in our stories could tell some situations, some scenarios where we opened up the present and we, that we thought we were getting one thing, but we really got something entirely different. So this situation, as we read through the book of Ruth, it's in chapter 9 of the book, the story, which is right along with the Bible. If there was a video camera rolling in this story, you would see a lot of different expressions. There would be an expression of joy. There would be an expression of disappointment. There would be an expression of anger. And their story in many ways just reflects any life story if you've lived long enough. Now as you read through the Bible, the question that you should ask yourself is, why is this book even here? We're coming off the book of Judges. Now I have some great stories in the book of Judges. Looked at three of them last week. 
But it just doesn't seem to fit. In, in the Bible, even in the Bible, it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't even read like a Bible book. It, it doesn't seem to match anything the way the Bible's written. It comes during the time of the judges, but this is not about a judge. It doesn't seem, seemingly appear to be about even the nation of Israel. So why is it even here? I mean, at first glance, you read the story, it seems like you've got this story of a family, a family that's really of no importance, especially no prominence or special significance, and they just go through a lot of difficult times in their life. So why is the book of Ruth even in the Bible? Well, it's a story about a husband named Elimelech and his wife named Naomi. And we don't have a picture of Naomi, but we know what her name means. Her name means pleasant or sweet or beautiful. And it seems to capture her life early on. In fact, later in the book, she describes herself as full. As just being satisfied. And I'm sure that's how it felt on her wedding day as she and her husband stand. They commit their lives to one another and there's this look of excitement and anticipation and the things seem to be going according to the plan of her story. She has two boys are born to her. I don't know what it is about boys. Maybe it's because we raised three of them. I'm grateful that I have daughters, but they were fully grown and potty trained when I got them. But I wouldn't give you anything for my granddaughter. Whew. She's a handful. And we get to babysit a lot on Saturday nights especially. And So last night I introduced her to something brand new. She's never done it before. And I'm sure her mother and dad have already heard about it. And if they haven't, they're fixing to. I taught Kelsey how to dip cookies in milk. How can a child be living six years and not know how to dip cookies in milk? She does now. And I told her, the next time your dad buys Oreos, don't let him eat all of them because he does that. He dips them in milk. She goes, really? I said, yes. So guess what? Milk and Oreos coming to the Phillips household. But when we pick up this story, The expressions change. There's a lot of confusion because there's now been a famine in the land for some time. And it was a severe famine. And thank you, Lord, for the rain. Amen. Come on, rain all day long. Just leave the ice up north. Don't mess with the ice. Just let it rain. Let it rain. Let it rain. That old soaking kind of rain that just... (sighs) Yes, come on. We sleep better. Amen. But the famine was so great that Elimelech felt like they couldn't stay there any longer. So it's hard to imagine a famine like that. But we need to personalize it a little bit. So imagine that your husband comes home from work. And you can tell there's something going on. You can tell it's not been a good day. And you try to talk to him, but he doesn't really want to talk. He just kind of sits in silence. He turns the TV on, but he's really not watching it. You know what I'm saying. And finally, that night, as you lay in the bed in the darkness of the night, he says, they let me go at work today. And of course, you say all the right things. You say, hey, it's going to be all right. It's going to get better. You know, this, this won't last. Things will turn around. Things will get better. 
<clears throat> but they don't. Six months later, you've depleted most of your savings. You've sold your car. You've moved out of your house and into an apartment. Two years pass, and now it's not just affecting your family, but it's affecting the whole region. Everyone seems to be impacted by this, and your biggest concern is just what you're going to eat for the next meal. Have you ever known that kind of hunger? And you think about what you used to think about. You know, I can't believe I used to think about some things like my retirement or my portfolio or my wardrobe or what am I going to wear the next day? Because now all you can really think about is what are my boys going to eat? And you go up to the rooms at night and you kneel beside their beds and their growling stomachs make it so hard to hear their nightly prayers. <coughs> Things have just gotten desperate. Finally, your husband says, we can't stay here. We're going to have to move. We've got to try something different. We're not going to survive this if we don't. Well, this is what happens to Naomi and her husband. They have to move. They have to go somewhere. They have to try something new. They don't have food to eat. And so they go to this land called Moab and think, well, okay, it's not really that far. I mean, if we look at it on the map, it's only that far on the map. They're moving. Time for a fresh start. I mean, that happens. People do it all the time. We've got to understand what it was like for them. The promised land was part of who they were. It was a part of their identity. Each family had a piece of land designated to them in the promised land that would be passed on from generation to generation. And you don't just leave your piece of land. It's part of who you are. And it must have been absolutely desperate for them to pack up and leave. And they go to Moab. Moab? Those are the descendants of Sodom. You know what's in Sodom? Well, not much anymore. <laughs> Any of you familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah? God had an, uh, an urban renewal plan that He placed on them. That's why they no longer exist. Some of you are going, what? Go read it. But it was a very pagan culture. And what you have in Moab is a lot of prejudice toward the Israelites. And they're sworn enemies of God. So they go to this very hostile country because they just need food to eat. And they've heard that the ground is more fertile in Moab. And so that's where they go. It would be like moving from Oklahoma to West Texas. Or to North Dakota or South Dakota. Now, if I've got those three choices, I'm going to go to West Texas because I'm not a frozen tundra kind of person. Right? During the winter, when it's 98 million below zero, I just, I just don't get it. When you've got to run your car all night so it doesn't explode, that doesn't make any sense either. But that's where the jobs are. People are moving all over the country, to those kind of places. You can go work at McDonald's for $20 an hour. Wow. But if you're really sharp, you can drive a truck for about $75 an hour. Whoa. So you can go up there and make six figures in no time. Whoa. People are moving. Of course, they can't find a place to live. They're living in their car that they have to run all the time. But you know, other than that, so they're in Moab. 
And then Obi thinks, well, you know, I think I've lost everything. We've lost our home, our land. But I do have my husband. He's a good man. He takes care of us. I've got my two boys. They're healthy. They're strong. I've got my God. I've got my faith. And you know what? If I've got all that, I'm going to be okay. <coughs> I'm going to be okay. She even says later in the book that she felt full. But they get to Moab. Elimelech gets sick. <coughs> he doesn't get better. He becomes weaker and weaker. And eventually her husband dies. And here she is, a single mom, a widow, living in a strange country called Moab, a hostile country actually, trying to raise two boys. And the two boys grow up. They fall in love with two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Bit of trivia. Orpah was the original name given to Oprah Winfrey. But she didn't like Orpah. Orpah. So she changed it. Just a little bit of trivia for you. So these two guys get married to these two women. It seems like everything's going great. Finally some good news for Naomi, right? Two weddings. Two weddings are followed quickly by two funerals. (coughs) No time for grandkids. Naomi, after losing her husband, loses both of her sons. And she begins to experience incredible grief. I put this in your outline. Author Edgar Jackson defined grief with four statements. Grief is a silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone that is no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who has died. Grief is that helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are not and never will be again. Now, some of you get it. You know loss and you know disappointment. But some of you don't. But let me assure you, you will. You will. None of us are exempt from this, and if it's not here now, it's coming later. And Naomi experiences what would seem to be just an inordinate amount of loss, one thing after another. A preacher had a lady in his church, a sweet lady, whose name is Millie. Millie is a widow in in their church who was married for 51 years to her beloved husband, and after he passed, she didn't think that she would ever taste love again, but she did. Five years later, she was engaged to be married, and just before their wedding day, the fiancé passed away. (coughs) And she wanted just to talk to the preacher for a bit. So she sits, sits down at the table at the church. She reaches over and she grabs his hand, and she's held on to his hand. And she says to this preacher, I know there are other people who feel the way I feel. I know there are other people who are hurting the way I'm hurting. And she just expressed what many of you already know, that oftentimes you've got, good, got, got friends and well-meaning family and perhaps a church that says, hey, it's going to be okay. I want you to see Millie's story. My name is Millie Renner and I write poetry. After 
51 years of marriage, I lost my dear husband to cancer. And a few years later, I was given the gift of love again. And my fiance and I were planning a wedding in late spring of last year when uh, in early April, he suddenly died. I just feel like it's kind of a little ministry that God has given to me to uh, not only help me through my grief, but to help other people through theirs. And sometimes just knowing that someone understands and that you're not <coughs> alone in it can be a help. Do you see that pile of wood chips on the floor? That's what is left of the life I had before, when I was loved by you with all your heart, when passion awoke and played its part. Our oneness and purpose, agreement and thought is something that could not be bartered or bought. It seemed to be perfect to have heaven's blessing. Each word, gaze and touch was a form of caressing. I never had known such love before. Now all that remains is that pile on the floor. It looks to others like I'm doing all right. They don't see the wood chip of crying at night. My family and friends think I'm doing okay. The wood chip is hidden of my struggle each day. So many chips in that pile on the floor. Emptiness, loneliness, disappointment, and more. Dreams unfulfilled, plans hung in mid-air, love uncompleted beckons imagining so rare. My life has been broken, nothing fits anymore. There's this big pile of wood chips in the middle of my floor. And that's how Naomi felt. That's all that's just left and is this pile on the floor of broken pieces. And after losing everything, she decides she really doesn't have much choice but to go back home and just hope that things are better in, that, in her small town. And so she tells her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, Hey, look, you stay, your young women. Stay in your homeland of Moab. You have time to remarry, have a family. But I've got to go back. And Orpah agrees to stay. But Ruth, her daughter-in-law just refuses to stay. We read, it, we read it earlier in verse 16 of chapter 1. Don't, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So here's this daughter-in-law saying this to her mother-in-law. <clears throat> You've probably heard those words read at a wedding. Between a, a guy and a girl and standing there, a bride and a groom, and they'll say these things to each other and expressing their love and devotion. But if we're really going to be accurate with the text here, what should happen in the wedding is that the bride turns to her mother-in-law, her future mother-in-law, and says, where you go, I'll go. <laughs> well, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that is a tradition that's going to catch on, huh? But that's what's happening here. 
This is just a very special relationship that's formed between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. And the Bible says when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth and Naomi make a difficult journey back to Naomi's hometown. And you know, I was telling you, I'm not sure why this book is here. Well, they go across the mountains and they go to her hometown. Her hometown, Naomi's hometown, is the town of Bethlehem. Hmm. I think now we're starting to see a little bit of indication why that story is here. Bethlehem, a small town, less than 200 people. So when Naomi returns, I mean, it's big news. People start to talk. They say, is it her? Doesn't look like her. (coughs) Is this Naomi? Now remember, her name means pleasant or sweet or beautiful. And so they're saying, is this really Naomi? And she says, don't call me that. Because God has made my life bitter, not sweet. And in chapter 1, verses 20 21, it says, The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You ever felt that way? Do you see the expression on her face? I mean, she's angry. She's mad at God because He has not held up His end of the deal. It's not the way her story was supposed to go. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. And she says, look what God has done to me. (coughs) He's made my life bitter. The Almighty has brought this misfortune upon me. It's His fault. He's afflicted me. I wonder if some of this sounds familiar. And you you just reach a point where it feels like what you've had and what you'd hoped for what you felt like God was going to deliver or give you, what hadn't worked out. And so you read the story in the book of Ruth of Naomi, and then the question arises, what's the story all about? Well, it's really easy, isn't it? The story's about loss. It's about a woman who just loses everything, her home, her land, her husband, her sons. It's about loss. But let me ask you another question. Does the story have to be about loss? Does it have to be about that? She loses a lot. Incredible pain and loss, yes. But it doesn't have to be about the loss. Is that what the story has to be about? ran across a story about a guy named Gerald Sitzer who was a professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. A number of years ago, Gerald was in a car accident and he was hit by a drunk driver in a minivan. He lost, that day, three generations. He lost his mom, his wife, and his young daughter. But he was not hurt. And in his interview, he just talked about what that was like. And he wrote a book, I love the title, A Grace Disguised. A Grace Disguised. And here's what he says. The experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. Now, it's one thing for me to say that. A whole different thing when he says it. But he says the defining moment can be our response to the loss. The story doesn't have to be about the loss. The story could be about our response to the loss. So, in other words, we don't get to decide what role we play in the story of our lives but we get to decide how we play the roles that we're given. And that's kind of hard. I think it was hard for Naomi not to just get caught up in the pain of the lower story. The pain of this right here. 
And that's what we tend to do. We get focused on what's happening right in front of us and we see the box and there's just disappointment. Naomi says, don't call me sweet because I'm bitter. I left full, but I've come back empty. But here's what we're going to see. That if there is one word to describe the story of Naomi, it's not the word loss. It's the word redemption. It's not loss. It's redemption. So Naomi thinks that she's coming back empty, that God has abandoned her, but if she could just wipe away the tears enough, she would see that really God is at work in the midst of what seems to be incredible loss. That God was at work redeeming the story. And I want to give you three quick, three things quickly to show us how that God redeemed her and can redeem us. First of all, He redeems her story of loss with an unlikely friendship. God has a way of doing this. We experience loss and grief and He'll bring along someone that gives us the strength to get through it. Now what many of you would say who have gone through this is that that person isn't always who you think it is and who it would be. And that's true. It's true here. Who would have guessed that her daughter-in-law from Moab would be the one that she would have this close, connected relationship with? In fact, in verse chapter 4 and verse 15, Naomi is told that her daughter Ruth is better than seven sons. So in the midst of her grief, she has this special friendship that helps redeem the story and it's really interesting, though, because she tries to keep Ruth away. Remember? No, you stay here. I'll go by myself. I mean, we do that. We withdraw through the loss. And we have a tendency to push people away instead of pulling them close. And the reality is, is when we face difficult times in life, we just need somebody to say, <coughs> it's going to be okay. We'll get through this together. Everything is going to be all right. Yeah, I got a song for that. That's really what church is about. That God redeems the loss that is inevitable in our fallen world by surrounding us with brothers and sisters that we can grab by the arm and say, I just need somebody to tell me that what I'm going through is normal and that it's going to be okay. So God redeems the loss through His unlikely relationship. Secondly, He... God redeems loss through this undeserved kindness of Boaz. Now, a lot of that seemed weird culturally to you, the guardian, the, the, you know, the, the buying the property. I mean, that, that may seem weird to you in the culture of the day, that there's a guardian, he buys the property, inherits the wife, and all that stuff. But, they were in the promised land. And in the promised land, it was carved out for each family to have a piece. And so that peace became the heirs. When that person died, it just kept passing on, so it never left the family. And it, was, it would fall to the closest relative to redeem that lost land to the family. They would redeem the loss by buying the property, marrying the widow, and then having a descendant with the widow who would then inherit the family's property. So Boaz comes along and he says, I'll buy the property and I'll take the responsibility for Ruth. And it's really no small act of kindness because it's really a sacrifice, especially when you consider that Ruth is a Moabite, that the men in the area wouldn't, would really have nothing to do with her. But here's Boaz who goes out of his way to redeem her. 
And so why? Well, as we've been reading in this story, and if you've been reading this story, it turns out that the mother of Boaz, his name is Rahab. Rahab's job in Jericho was to be a prostitute. A foreigner who helped the Israelites when they took the promised land. And it turns out that Rahab had a son named him Boaz who grew up to be a man who honored God and provided for and protected those who were less fortunate. So Boaz shows this undeserved act of kindness. God uses that to redeem the story. And then the third way that God redeems the story is with unpredictable, with an unpredictable ending. With this unpredictable ending. The story of Ruth ends with a genealogy. And we read that, the, that he gave birth, that, that they gave birth to a son and named him Obed. Obed gave birth to a son and named him Jesse. Jesse had a son that named him David, who became King David. And as you read through the genealogy, you go all the way to Matthew chapter 1. And in the genealogy of Jesus, it says, Because Ruth chapter 4 ends with David, and Matthew chapter 1 begins the same way Ruth ends as it points to Jesus Christ, who has become our great Redeemer. So who would have guessed that God was taking all the broken pieces on the floor and turning them into this incredible piece of art, something beautiful. So if you've ever seen the videos, the kids open the present, they look... The look goes from confusion to hurt to anger. But in one, in one, in one video that I saw, a box was given and the box cover had the picture of a pottery wheel on it. And the kid goes, really? And just throws the whole thing across the floor. Well, mom goes over and picks it up and she comes back and she finds her son and she says, now you have to open it. You have to open the box to see what's in the box. And the son opens up the box and inside the pottery wheel box is an Xbox and a few extra games and an extra controller. And then mom wasn't trying to play a joke. She just said, I couldn't fit it all in any other box. So I found this box and it all fit in there. I had to fit it all in this box. So I put it all in this box. But you had to open the box. Well, here's what I'm saying. Before you stomp out of the room and slam the door because you don't like what you see in the box, I'm just saying, take time to open the box. Because you see what God has inside, it may be that the box you're looking at is the only box He could fit some of the things into. So just wait and see what's in the box. What I love about the story of Ruth is that it's different from the other stories we've looked at And that it doesn't have any incredible miracle or act of God. You know, I mean, Abraham had an audible voice. Moses had a burning bush. Jonah had a whale. Noah had an ark. You don't see any of that stuff in the book of Ruth. You don't see some overt or obvious act. There's no splitting of the Red Sea, closing the mouth of the lions, nothing like that. But you get to the end of the story, and here's what you know for certain. God is at work. And that's the message. God is at work. It may feel too late. Things may seem too broken. God is at work. It doesn't seem obvious. His hand is not necessarily apparent. God is at work. It may not be dramatic. It may may not be immediate. God is at work. And I'm so just saying, see what's in the box. 
The box that you're looking at may be labeled widow or divorced or cancer or terminated or infertile or abused, but don't, don't let that be your story. Your story does not have to be about loss. Your story can be about redemption. Give God a chance. Give Him a chance to work. Lord, I thank You for the story. That doesn't necessarily seem to belong in the Bible. And it's really just about the great story of your son Jesus who came to redeem us. Who is our kinsman redeemer. Who is our guardian. Who purchased with his blood our salvation and our future. So God, would you allow us to surrender our story to you? And Lord, would you not let us have a story that's just about loss and pain and challenge. But Lord, would you allow us to have a story that tells you of your redemption. Of what you can do when we give you those broken pieces. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.